Presented by WPFW, Washington, D.C., and WBAI, New York City. Code Pink Radio broadcasts every Thursday, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, and rebroadcasts at 7 p.m. Eastern on Thursday evenings. You are listening to Emma's Revolution. Today's program is part of Code Pink's Latin America team's work. I am your host, Terry Matson. And today's emphasis will be on Latin America and the Caribbean, and we'll feature true humanitarian stories, a profound story from a Cuban American who just finished a 3,000 mile bicycle trip across country for his project Factory of Dreams. And the second half of the hour, we will focus on yet another humanitarian project, one from Haiti. We'll have a vibrant discussion on UNIFA, University of the Aristide Foundation, with members of the Haiti Action Committee. But first, I'd like to give us an update on news out of Latin America and the Caribbean. And joining us for that is Leonardo Flores. He is a member of Code King's Latin America team and an excellent policy advisor on Latin America. Welcome, Leonardo. So happy to have you with us today. Thank you, Terry. I'll go ahead and get started. Protests in Bolivia entered their second week and there was a growing fear that the interim coup government will violently repress them. People began taking to the streets in late July after the Añez regime postponed elections for a third time. Añez came into power following the coup in November 2019 that ousted President Evo Morales. Their interim government has begun the process to privatize the nation's vast lithium reserves and education system. Protesters are demanding the resignation of the coup government as well as immediate elections. Polls show that Morales' mass party could win the presidency. However, the coup government has just charged the mass candidate, Luis Arce, as, as well as Evo Morales himself with attempted genocide. According to the coup government, protesters have been preventing COVID supplies from reaching hospitals. However, Video evidence from several cities shows protesters making way for ambulances and supply trucks to pass through roadblocks. Furthermore, the number of daily COVID deaths in Bolivia has remained steady since the protests began, undercutting the Inez government's accusations. The World Health Organization issued a warning about the progression of COVID-19 in Latin America. Although many news reports focus on Brazil because of the coronavirus denialism of the Bolsonaro government, the pandemic is hitting other countries just as hard, if not harder. In the region, Chile leads in the number of cases per million inhabitants, followed by Panama, Peru, Brazil, Colombia, and the Dominican Republic. The United States will be third on that list after Panama. 
it's worth noting that the worst COVID-19 performers in Latin America implemented neoliberal policies in the months and years prior to the, prior to the pandemic. In Trinidad and Tobago, the ruling People's National Movement won Monday's election, taking 22 of the 41 seats in the legislature. This means that incumbent Prime Minister Keith Rowley will serve a second term. Rowley's government has won praise for its handling of the pandemic, but will face an economy that has contracted in seven of the past 10 years. Protests in Peru against mining and oil companies caused them to halt operations after deadly clashes. Three indigenous protesters were killed and another 17 people were wounded in the Amazon region after security forces confronted protesters at an oil field operated by a Canadian company. In Southern Peru, protesters won concessions from a mining company, which promised a $285 cash payout for every resident in the town, as well as financing for a medical oxygen plant. In Colombia, Wilfermin Roballo, an ex-combatant of the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, who was among those that signed the 2016 peace agreement, was murdered over the weekend. Since the signing of this agreement, 224 members of the FARC have been assassinated. The Colombian government's lack of action regarding what appears to be the targeted killing of FARC members has led to the peace agreements unraveling. Latin American diplomats are pushing back on the Trump administration's decision to nominate a U.S. citizen to lead the Inter-American Development Bank. Since its inception, this position has been held by someone from Latin America, but Trump broke with tradition and nominated Mauricio Claver Caron to head the institution. Claver Caron is the National Security Council's Director for Western Hemisphere Affairs and is known for his hardline aggressive stances on Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. He has close ties to Senator Marco Rubio as well as to President Trump, but he has little banking experience. Diplomats have called for a postponement of the September vote that could see Claver Caron win the office. They're hoping to delay the vote until the next administration here in the US. Thank you, Leonardo. Always so good for our audience to hear such a broad spectrum of news happening across Latin America and the Caribbean. Joining us next is Carlos Lazo. Carlos just completed a 3,000 mile bicycle trip across the United States beginning in Seattle and ending, he began in Seattle on July 11th and completed his trip in Washington, D.C. on August 5. He pedaled 3,600 miles across the United States with two of his sons and two of his nephews to raise awareness of the U.S. blockade embargo on Cuba and how it affects Cuban Americans of all political affiliations. Welcome, Carlos. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here, Terry. And I'm tired uh, from uh, the 3,600 miles that we bike, but I'm also satisfied of what we did. And I am so full of hopes and, and, and happiness for the kind of breaches of love that we create with so many people, including you guys that I, I, I just here sitting, watching the light of the party. And the party is the day when the United States and Cuba are gonna embrace our friends as brothers. And I know that that's coming. I know that it's there. And I don't have doubts. 
Well, so, you know, I think all of us at Code Pink would say the same, and we have supported many delegations over the years who were to, to support that people-to-people -people, um, relationship and to share stories and to share the humanity that exists between the people of both nations. So, Carlos, tell us a little bit about um, where uh, yourself. You have a fascinating story of yourself. I think last week at, at our event, you mentioned it was like, being a child of a divorce, your how you define yourself of Cuba and and America and the United States. Yeah, well, and it's true. Actually, I'm a, a, a child of a, a, in my family of a divorce. The divorced parents. My 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 parents divorced when I was around four years old, and I I know all the trauma for kids uh, that divorce can create, especially when parents don't get along pretty good. And that was a case in my family too at the beginning, you know, parents fighting for this, for that. And sometimes we parents don't know or don't realize how hurtful uh, this can be for, for children. And I uh, tied this situation to the same situation in terms of countries. I have been in the United States for uh, half of my life. I'm 55 and I came here in 1991, um, basically half of my life in Cuba. I left Cuba when I was 27 and half of my life here, I have been here for 28, 20, uh, 20, yeah, 28 years, basically 50, 55 years. And for me, Cuba is like my mother because it's a place where I start walking, playing with my friends, being a child, learning music, falling in love, when I was a teenager. And, but the United States is at the same time as my father, because this is a place where I fulfill so many dreams in my life, where I achieve so many uh, things that I want to do, that I want to be. And basically, I have a profound love for both places. And, and my heart is divided between the two. And my hope is that these two places, this mother and this father, get along good, get a good relationship for the sake of their children that are the, the, the hundreds of thousands of people, uh, Cuban Americans who live here, who feel in the same way that I feel. And basically, that's a little bit my story. I, I came from Cuba, and Cuba I was, uh, I, my mother had left Cuba when I was a teenager, I stayed there with my father when I, in, in 1990, uh, 1988, I tried to leave the country. At that time, uh, leaving Cuba illegally was prosecuted. I mean, I, you could end up in jail. And I spent one year in prison for trying to escape in the raft. Two years later, when I came out of prison, I prepared another raft, and this time I made it. After four days in the ocean, I came to, to Florida Keys and I was rescued. That was in, in, in October 1991. Since that time, I came to the United States. I made so many, uh, I worked in so many jobs. I really embraced the, the culture and the, the country. I tried to learn about the people here, about the history. I, uh, uh, in 1998, I moved to Seattle, Washington, there as a way to, to 
thank the state because this state was so great for, for my family, for me. I joined the Washington National Guard as a combat medic. At that time, there was not war yet. It was just basically to help in the community any, any disaster as the Washington National Guard. But it came the Iraq work and I end up going to the war, to, to participating in the, in, in the Iraq war in the Battle of Alusha as a combat medic. Wow. Yeah. It's a, after I came back, oh, oh, one of the first times when I have, that I have to basically confront with the idea of doing some type of political or activism for family was when I came back from Iraq in 2004. I came back during my two weeks of R&R vacation and I tried to visit my children in Cuba. I have two children in Cuba who were from my previous marriage and I always kept a good relationship with them. Actually, they live for many years here now, but during that time they were in Cuba and I tried to visit them. And, uh, but at that moment, the Bush administration put in place restrictions that prevent Cuban Americans from visiting Cuba. And those restrictions just allow us to go once every three years. Since I have been in Cuba a few months before going to war, I couldn't go now because I have to wait three years. And for me, it was so ironic that I was supposedly fighting for my country, my adopted country, for, for uh, democracy. And at the same time, I was prevented from visiting my children in Cuba. What, and then I started writing to members of Congress, that was in 2004, 2005. And I, when I came back from Iraq, I ended up testifying in the US Senate uh, in regards of lifting the, the, the this, the travel restrictions. Travel restrictions for mm -hmm. eight years. Eventually, I have to say this is really fascinating yeah. that you're sharing this with us today because, you know, the story is about Cuba, Cuba's oppression, and here you have served honorably in the U.S. military, and now were prevented, well, one, prevented just in general for going back from the Bush administration, but also is, it, is my understanding correct that because you had recently served in the U.S. military, you could not go as well? Yeah, but there was even, uh, I think that the most, the, the, the point was that you couldn't go if you were, period. period. Yeah. You were, couldn't go back home. And they were uh, in the Senate, they tried uh, some uh, Senate, senators that were supportive, they were trying to pass some amendments to allow me go to, but at the end, they didn't change that. They, nothing, nothing was changed until uh, Obama came to the White House and the, and the Obama White House changed the status quo, lift the restrictions. Uh, we couldn't go and, and see our families and the relationship started getting a little bit better. Uh, during those years, basically, since I could go and see my family, I just went back to my business. Basically, I, I, I want to, for many years, I want to study. When I came from Cuba, I, I was just having a high school. And then at 40, I decided to go back to school and I started going to college, taking classes. And finally, I've, in the last 15 years, I'm still going to school. 
Uh, I, I, I finished uh, complete two bachelors at the University of Washington. Then I complete uh, two masters. And right now I'm in the way to completing my uh, uh, doctoral degree in education. I am in the last process of writing my, my dissertation. But wow, it, congratulations. Uh, when I was 40 and, and I have the support of my family, uh, since I was working full time, I and and so many people helped me to 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 finish to complete the school. I end up teaching at the University of Washington. I and and right now for the last seven years I have been teaching in high schools in 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 the school district here close to my house in in Washington. And one of the things that I have done that in the last two years also is taking students from my we found the uh, founded the, the factory of dreams and we have been taking students from our school and parents to visit cuba in educational trips wow that's fantastic and it's so fantastic to expose young people to start yeah. people at an early age i uh, that's a really honorable project of yours and your, your career as an educator as well there's a couple things you mentioned that um, really strike me. Uh, you know, the, um, the inability to travel to Cuba, which was lifted to a certain degree under the Obama administration and now has been uh, tightened. And also the ability to send remittances back home to family members that has been um, restricted again as well. And what's, what's, fascinating to me in listening to you um, talk is that this is beyond political affiliation. This affects all Cubans living in the United States, regardless of political philosophy. And I think sometimes that is lost um, on, on the broader U.S. population. We hear one specific narrative uh, that it affects, you know, one group of people and not the other, but it affects all Cuban Americans. Yeah. The and, and I, I just want to go back and, and remind you, or maybe tell you, that in 2000, in, in like three months ago, we, when, when the pandemic started like kicking up in Cuba around the world, we, we create a, a petition in change.org asking President Trump to leave temporarily the, some sanctions against Cuba because of the coronavirus. It was mm -hmm. not not even lift the embargo, just some sanctions. And we got already around 20,000 signatures. And most of the signatures that we have there are from Cuban Americans. Basically, wow. Cuban Americans who are in all political, uh, conservative, uh, Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't matter. It's just people who care about their families and they think that the right thing to do is to leave sanctions, and, and this goes beyond political. People put uh, in the back seat the political considerations and give a priority to human considerations. And maybe in the political discourse, you hear sometimes more the most conservative, the people who are against any type of dialogue, but I can tell you firsthand that the majority of the Cuban American community 
want a better relationship between our countries, a more functional relationship, more respectful relationship between our two countries. And that's, that will benefit everyone. Because when you, for instance, a few months ago was the, 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 the flights from the United States to different provinces right. in Cuba were canceled. When, when you do that, when the government does that, basically you prevent any type of Cuban, not, it doesn't matter what is your political uh, position, to visit your family when they live in another province. Then they, this grandmother who lives in Miami have to go to Havana, get a taxi or a bus and spend another day to go to that province and then spend another day coming back. And that affects everybody. That affects the family over there, the family over here. You mentioned the restriction to send money. I want to remind you that we are the only community who have prohibitions on the amount of money that we can send to our family. I mean, our money, we cannot send to our families whatever we want. We cannot send more than a certain amount uh, for every three months. I mean, it's something really ridiculous if you want to say it. But not only that, the United States prevent all people from other parts of the world to use the service of Western Union to send money to Cuba. Basically, if you live in Spain and you want to send money to your family, you cannot use Western Union to use to send the money. It's prohibited, not even restriction. It's completely prohibited because the United States want to prevent those family to access that money. That's something that if it's changed and lifted, it will benefit everyone yeah you know the irony of that is it's a policy that's being used principally you know to attack the government via its citizens of cuba but it's the inverse effect is it's happening it's it's hurting people like you here in the states i mean it's a policy directed in one direction but it it basically is kind of backfired in a way i would say i mean it, it's in it, it's a great illustration of just how archaic the embargo, the sanctions, the restrictions on Cuba are. It just, it just doesn't work. It ends up hurting people here in the States as well. Not, then that is not to dismiss the, the overt attempt to hurt people in, in Cuba. But, it, you know, in listening to you, it just, the whole policy just sounds so ridiculous. It's hard to believe that it's still in place. I'm going to give you an example of how far these restrictions go. Uh, during one of our trips to Cuba with our students, uh, we basically were paying for the flight, for the, for the group flight. And one parent uh, told me, Senor Lasso, can you pay for my flight? I will send you the money through one of these Benmo or Sele, any of these places that you send the money. Yeah, okay. Usually we pay with a check, but, and the person sent me the, the money and put in the uh, for the trip to Cuba. Mm -hmm. And just putting for the trip to Cuba, the word Cuba basically blocked that money for months. Wow. It doesn't matter if I explain that it was a, to pay for the flight in American Airlines, that was something to, to, to during, during our, our, right now we initiate our 
trip around the United States, our journey, the 11th of July. And I spent a lot of money from my family. I didn't want to uh, ask from anyone because sometimes efforts that involve money uh, are not good. I like to more working with the heart and I told my, mobilized my family, we bought an old RV, we bought the bikes. But at the end of the day, uh, we already had to spend almost like $20,000 and we didn't have any more money for the trip. And then we decide to ask the community to help us. And we basically for the for the gas, for all the uh, reparations, for all the things of food, and we create a GoFundMe page with a target of eight thousand dollars for for one month. You know, all basically. And when I create the GoFundMe page, three hours after creating the GoFundMe page, because a world queue, build bridges of love between Cuba and the United States was there. GoFundMe block the account basically oh wow and then so not even that gofundme sanction it was maybe what we call those of us that work on lifting sanctions and not just on cuba on about 39 countries across the planet that are sanctioned by the united states is that what we would call an over compliance issue by gofundme they were just scared yeah. Yeah, department? Maybe, maybe GoFundMe did it because if they don't do that, they can be also fined by the U.S. Yeah. government. I don't blame GoFundMe yeah. or banks who are over, like, over compliance. Basically, after I explained that the money was basically for paying for the food, for the, for the gas, for anything, then they unblock the account and then they spend, like, I have to spend like 21 days while I was biking explaining to them that the money was basically for the trip because the money never arrived until three or four days ago we have to basically to get a credit card and pay for all the expenses during because the money the people were donating the people were super excited mostly of most of the donations are from cuban americans but and and i didn't want to say anything until the last resource right and finally after many letters back and forth, they release most of the money. Uh, but just by having the name Cuba there, there are a lot of restrictions. They were yeah. When you look at the UN vote every October, I think it comes up in October, uh, among the United Nations members to lift the embargo on Cuba. It's always somewhere between hundred of the 193 members anywhere from like 185 to 190 countries vote to lift the embargo and the United States and one or two of its loyal um, allies vote against it. And so your experience and hearing from people all over the world just so reinforces what happens at the UN every, every fall. And, um, it's just so, it's so important. Your story is just so profoundly important. The humanity of it is just the greatest thing. And I'm, I'm so pleased to have you in this conversation today because this tearing down of this mainstream media narrative is, is so key in getting our voices and desires heard in Washington. And let me tell you something else, because I think that the main reason, because this policies of embargo and, and restrictions 
I think that the main reason because the current administration put that there and keep that is because they think that it will be beneficial in electoral terms. Yeah. Okay. I that too. Now, I, if I could give a message to President Donald Trump, I will disagree with that. Because first of all, whoever is going to vote for Trump in our community is going to vote for Trump. But he is alienating a lot of votes from Cuban Americans who see that this administration is basically hurting their families. And then if instead of getting in the way of more restrictions, he will go in the way of going even more profound in the Obama policies and going deeper, I think that he will get even more votes, not less votes. But it's difficult to, 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 to see this. But in reality, I think that by, by cutting in remittances, by creating all these roadblocks for our families, the administration is losing votes in, their, in our community. And we will see that on November. That's Many terrific. So I just want to thank you so much. I just want to thank you as just for being such a wonderful person and who you are. I mean, you, you're just a gift for, for all of us here in the U.S. and to, and to reemphasize, you know, what is possible for all of us together as, as fellow human beings and fellow citizens and, and for taking the time this afternoon to share this fantastic story and your terrific trip. I'm, I'm just, I'm so thankful for having met you. Okay, well, thank you very much, Teddy, for having me here. And also want to thank Medea and Cold Pink for the opportunity to, for, for the meeting you guys there in Washington, D.C. for the great time that we spent together. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a wonderful. So thank you again, Carlos. A real pleasure. Yeah. And we'll be sure to have, have uh, more conversations. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to take a short break. And in the second half of our program, we're going to be joined by three members of the Haiti Action Committee out of San Francisco. We're going to have a wonderful conversation with them about UNIFA, the University National of the Foundation Auto Steed. We'll be right back. All pirates, yes, they rabbi. Sold I to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the hand of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Cause all I ever have redemption songs, redemption songs. 
Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Have no fear for atomic energy, 'cause none of them can stop the time. How long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? Some say it's just a part of it. We've got to fulfill the book. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? 'Cause all I ever have. Welcome back to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI New York City and WPFW Washington D.C. Thursdays, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, rebroadcasting 7 p.m. Eastern. The second half hour of our show, we are going to be joined by three members of the Haiti Action Committee from San, Fran from San Francisco, and I'm happy to introduce all of them to you now. Pierre Lavoisier, Seth Donnelly, and Judith Merk Merkinson. Welcome, everybody. So happy to have you with me today. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jerry. So I thank you very you, much. Thank you so much. I have to let the audience know that all three uh, of our guests today are such an inspiration for me and people that um, I have worked with um, over the years uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's a real honor to have the three of you here. So Pierre, um, I'm going to ask all three of you to just give a, a brief introduction of yourselves to our audience and and your role with Haiti Action Committee, and then we can we can start our broader conversation. So Pierre, let's start with you. Yes, Pierre Labossiere, originally from Haiti, moved to the U.S. when I was a teenager, and um, and I moved to the Bay Area in '81. And uh, we've been in contact with the grassroots movement in Haiti um, way before that being formed there. And uh, what they asked us to do, they asked us to have a supporting uh, an organization that would be in solidarity with the grassroots struggle in Haiti. And that's what we've been doing since our founding in 1991. And can you tell us just a little bit what, when you say grassroots struggle, what What should our audience know about that? What exactly does that mean for for you and the Haitian people? What it means is that um, typically what you've had in Haiti is an it's a domination of the of the discourse by a tiny elite, and they are the ones who usually they speak French, they project themselves outside of Haiti, and the needs of the of the men and women, the overwhelming majority are not mentioned. Their concerns, the exploitation that they suffer is not mentioned. So we are talking about the peasants, the workers, the, the many who are so exploited, students who for the most part, overwhelmingly poor. They are the ones who have taken to the streets to demand their rights, to demand equality, to demand justice. And so that's what I mean when I say grassroots. I'm talking about the overwhelming majority of the population of Haiti that wants to see a change. What we say here, the 99%. That's correct. And that's what <laughs> we say also in Haiti. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Seth, welcome to today's program. Thank you. And tell us a little bit about your role with the Haiti Action Committee. 
So I, I joined the Haiti Action Committee in the summer of 2004 um, after the coup. Uh, the, the, the preceding February, February 29, 2004, there was the violent coup um, against President Aristide and uh, backed by the United States um, US government. Um, and there was a need to have a fact-finding delegation in on the ground in Haiti that summer to try to get start getting into the prisons and look uh, get documentation on what was happening with political prisoners. And so a dear friend of mine was already in Haiti action. He recruited me, and I went down with a small team with him and another comrade, um, and we spent weeks in the in 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 the prisons, we were able to gain access and discover the most horrendous conditions of political repression and abuse. Um, that then led towards uh, me becoming a full-fledged member of Haiti Action Committee and going back regularly ever since, um, working with various, continuing the human rights work, but also uh, working with popular grassroots organizations on the ground and taking my high school students um, on 12 different delegations to work with some of these popular grassroots organizations as well and to try to generate support solidarity with the popular movement the grassroots movement that pierre mentioned it's fascinating i love that you take students and for our audience i actually met seth in port-au-prince when our delegate two of our delegate your delegation <laughs> i think it was the last day of yours yeah. and the first day of mine or something to that effect so yeah that was very cool and so our, um, our other guest uh, today is Judith Merck Merkinson. Welcome, Merck. Hi. Um, well, I've been an, like an adjunct member of, <laughs> of Haiti Action from the very <laughs> beginning because my partner was one of the founders, Robert Roth. And uh, I've been particularly interested in two areas of work in terms of Haiti. One is the condition of women, and I've written about that, uh, especially in terms of the issues both of women organizing and overcoming sexual violence in Haiti, and the impact of the, uh, the United Nations and the impact of militarization on Haiti, and then the organizing of grassroots women. And the other um, aspect has been around human rights and especially charting the impact of the combination of militarization and the impact of US intervention and on Haiti. And last year, actually, Seth and I wrote a report, uh, me from the National Lawyers Guild and Seth from Haiti Action on the human rights crisis in Haiti, specifically focusing on a massacre that happened in a neighborhood called La Saline. So we're continuing to do that. And the other aspect is also to understand the role of the Aristide Foundation and UNIFA and how important it is to support uh, these efforts, because I think one of the things is that a lot of times when people think about Haiti, if they think about it at all, it's like, oh, it's such a mess. It's so terrible. Nothing can be done. And I think what UNIFA shows, as well as the grassroots movement, is that there's a vibrant organizing going on in Haiti. And it goes from grassroots people in the markets and women in the markets all the way up to the university level. And I think the other thing I would say is that right now, 
when we're really focusing on white supremacy and racism in this country, we have to pay attention to what's going on in Haiti. And I think we haven't really done the best job of that. And so I wonder, um, for our audience, if, if one of you can give us just a, a very brief history of what actually happened in 2004. And the reason I ask is because we're seeing a lot of similar activities, um, particularly in the last year, um, across, the across the hemisphere. But if our audience could just understand the coup in 2004 and the need and RSD returning in 2011, and then let's also talk about um, the uprisings in Haiti in early 2019, which got very little coverage, although those uprisings following in Ecuador, Chile, and later in the year in Bolivia got a lot of, a lot of press coverage. But let's have a brief, a, a brief history of what happened in 2004, because it's so important to things we're seeing today. Well, the, the, the coup um, is very similar to other uh, coups the U.S. has staged since. In fact, what the U.S. did in Haiti was, in a sense, a, uh, uh, an example of what a later iteration would be what they did in Honduras. Um, um, in, in, with the coup against President Aristide, the, um, at the time, the, the Bush administration cut off uh, loans and aid. Um, they, uh, they carried out an economic war, similar to what they did, um, what the Nixon administration did against Allende uh, in Chile. Um, the, US, um, the U.S. pumped millions of dollars into a bogus um, elite right-wing opposition called the, the Group of 184 um, that didn't really have any, it had no legitimate popular support on the ground in Haiti, but the U.S. pumped taxpayer dollars into that opposition uh, working with, uh, for example, sweatshop owner um, Bulos, who was part of that coup. Um, and then there was a paramilitary component where the United States government was, was weaponizing and supporting paramilitary counter-type terror units, such as the one led by Guy Philippe that would come in from the Dominican Republic and terrorize the people of Haiti. So it was a three-pronged coup. And even though the vast majority of the population remained in support of President Aristide, as demonstrations towards the very end continued to show, um, the U.S. was able to really create a huge amount of chaos. But what finally did it in was the U.S. government kidnapped President Aristide and his wife, Mildred, um, and put them on a mil U.S. military plane and flew them out of the country against their will. Uh, it sounds exactly like Honduras. February 29, 2004, and, and took them to uh, Central Africa, African Republic. Um, against, and that's well documented that that was a kidnapping. One of the best sources on that uh, is a book by Randall Robbins, uh, um, Robinson, An Unbroken Agony. Um, but there's many folks who documented this uh, kidnapping that um, they literally had to remove President Aristide and Mildred. First Lady Mildred Ayrshide by force out of the country. Um, when I was with students a few years ago, we went to UNIFA and we met with uh, Mildred Ayrshide. She sat with us for about three hours and gave us a blow by blow account of, of that horrible night, as well as um, the, the events leading up to the coup. 
And we also were able to see, going back to your earlier question, Terry, just what, um, despite the coup and despite all this repression since, the students, my students were blown away by UNIFA. Uh, they've never seen an institution like that where there was so much motivation with some of the poorest kids in Haiti or young adults in Haiti participating in these programs to become the future doctors and engineers and lawyers. And we were able to see classes in session. Later, uh, Merck and I were able to go see a graduation of UNIFA in March 2018. And I've, I, as a teacher, having seen too many graduations at this point, I've never seen a graduation as, as inspiring as what I've seen at UNIFA, where the, the oath of, for example, of the students, the future doctors, is to serve the people. Um, so the coup um, was extremely violent. The repression was massive. But despite that, UNIFA um, remains this incredible flagship of hope. It's a really inspiring, really inspiring story. So in 2011, the Aristides returned to Haiti. They returned, I would say, the one thing I would add to the issue about 2004 is that when the revolution happened in Haiti in 1804, the Haitian people were forced to pay reparations to France. I mean, we're talking, this is completely obscene. The, the enslaved people had to pay their slave masters because it was so, they made so much money. It was their richest colony of France. And the money that they had to pay bankrupted the country and, and it took it until the 20th century for them to pay it off. And when Aristide in 2003 and 2004 began to say to France, you know, you owe us that money. And, and it, in US, in current dollars, it was $21,700,000,000 that were owed. And it was sort of like that was the icing on the cake. And uh, subsequently, the coup happened. And the other thing about the coup is they did what they're doing in Venezuela and other countries where they're saying they're, they're putting up all these um, like human rights uh, accusations. And unfortunately, as often happens, human rights organizations working in the United States, such as Amnesty or Human Rights Watch, actually went along with it. So that didn't help the situation. But mostly it was because uh, Haiti represents something. Um, it's not just the money, which is important, but it represents, you know, a spirit of, of Black liberation. And the United States has never, from Thomas Jefferson on up, has never been able to tolerate that. Thank you very much. I, I just want to also highlight the fact that um, Haiti came together as a result of, the, of this massive uprising by the enslaved Africans. But um, we didn't, our foremothers and forefathers, because the women were in the leadership of that struggle, there was a man, Bookman Dotti, who, who presided over the ceremony, the planning, the Congress, really of the enslaved leaders, of the leaders of the enslaved population. But there was also a woman, Cecile Fatima. And she and Bookman, they co-presided over it, over that, that massive rebellion. But one success was achieved 13 years later in 1804, the Declaration of Independence. 
Haiti's foreign policy was aimed at overthrowing slavery, the destruction of slavery, and supporting brothers and sisters, other people who were struggling for freedom in different parts of the world. And that's how Simon Bolivar came to Haiti, and not just Simon Bolivar, others as well. And Haiti provided him not only sanctuary, but also gave him volunteers, many young men who had fought in the struggle for independence, went with him to Venezuela twice on two occasions and struggled with him. And the only thing Haiti demanded was that slavery would be abolished wherever he was successful. And Haiti led the struggle too in the present-day Dominican Republic, which at the time was a Spanish colony. 1822, Haiti abolished slavery there as well. And uh, so, and Haiti also extended its solidarity to the, to the people of Greece when they were fighting for their independence. And Haiti provided them with support, uh, such as shiploads of coffee so they could buy themselves the munition, the ammunition and the guns necessary for them to fight their way out of their oppression. And so we've had that spirit of solidarity and, um, and that's what you experience in Haiti when people welcomed you. So uh, I'll say this, that we look forward to people being in solidarity with us, you know, as we are fighting these, these evils that are oppressing us, and as we are building the country, of which UNIFA is a beautiful example of that rebuilding by the Haitian people themselves. And Seth, let's talk about some of the students you've brought as well before I, before I let you all go. <laughs> Seth, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think um, when we look at the impact that go, going to Haiti, we, we, when we go to Haiti with the delegations of students uh, from my, the public high school I work at uh, in, in the South Bay area of California, um, we stay with comrades, Haitian comrades. We don't, you know, we, we're very much integrated over many years of doing this work into the movement. So one of the biggest impacts that, that these trips have on, on students is when they see the capacity of people to grassroots, to organize, to, um, to resist, and to build. Um, UNIFA is a wonderful manifestation of what the organized people can build, uh, you know, as part of their resistance to, to the coup and the, the, the regime, but also towards building a new Haiti. There's other examples too we see with grassroots organizations where youth, um, fellow students, Haitian students serve as role models to, to our students. And when, they, when, when, they, when the US students come back here, they, the bar has been raised for them about what it means to organize, what it means to study, what it means to resist, and what it means to, to, to build. Um, the other thing I would simply add is that we learn a lot when we're in Haiti and before in Haiti and after about the role of the United States government in, in, in making the coup possible in the long history of sabotaging the Haitian revolution, opposing the Haitian revolution. Um, and most recently the U S government using our taxpayer dollars to fund the Haitian police, which have been linked um, to these have been involved in, in these horrific massacres like the La Saline massacre that Merck mentioned earlier. And that's very eye-opening for our students who come from a variety of backgrounds. Um, now in the United States, we're talking about defund the police, but then on the other hand, many of these young people are now aware 
that the U.S. government is funding the Haitian police that is on the day on a, on a weekly basis involves in extrajudicial killings of Haitian youth and activists and in horrific massacres. So that has radicalized um, our students for in a very good way to stand up further against the U.S. government and connect the dots that Black Lives Matter from Haiti to the Bay. Um, there, one of the things too that's fueling that's at the, the bedrock, I would say, of the struggle, of the grassroots struggle, of the grassroots movement in Haiti for justice and equality and self-determination, um, is the, the bedrock is tout moun se moun. It means every human being counts. Every human being is somebody. And this is the, the I, not just a slogan, but it encapsulates what what fueled the movement of our foremothers and forefathers in 1791, August 14th, is actually the, the anniversary of that big uh, Congress of the leadership of the enslaved population. And August 21st was the launch of the massive rebellion that culminated 13 years later in Haiti or 12 or so years later in Haiti becoming an independent nation. And so Tutmun Semun, when you say that in Haiti, and it, it means not only that people are, are, have rights as human beings and are entitled to those rights, but people are determined to take those rights. It's not as if they expect someone to give it to them. They know by their history, from the kidnapping in Africa to their struggle for liberation, for independence, and ongoing for economic justice, social justice, equality, that they have to fight to get it. And that's what's going on today. And so the, the, the university, UNIFA, on that basis of Tutmun Semun, which is President Arisid came up with that, it's saying that everyone, nobody should be excluded from having a good life. All the young people in Haiti should have access to education. All the young people, our men and women, must have access to quality of life, must have access to healthcare. And that's what's fueling, that's the philosophy of, the, of UNIFA, that's the philosophy of the movement in Haiti, and that's what's fueling the resistance of the Haitian people against oppression and injustice. Where we're all in it together and, and, the, and the solidarity is just wonderful and the friendships and the work that we all share. It's a really valuable um, relationship and it's very valuable work. And I'm so very thankful uh, for this conversation today. Okay. Great. Thank all right. you. Thank you Bye. so much. Bye-bye. You think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink.